As you might know, the lowest point in all of North America is in Death Valley, specifically Badwater Basin in Death Valley, California. It's 282 feet below sea level, which means it's really hot. Highest recorded temperature on the planet ever, 134 degrees in Death Valley. Even Houstonians don't want to sign up for that. Surface temperature, highest surface temperature, 201 degrees. Fellas, you can cook a brisket, slow cook a brisket on that surface. Death Valley, not much life in a place that's 134 degrees. See it up here. But what you might not know is that the highest summit in the continuous U.S. is only 80 miles from Death Valley. It's Mount Whitney. It's 14,505 feet in elevation. Just think about the contrast in the height and the environment between those two places that are only 80 miles apart. And some crazy people, ultra marathoners, are crazy enough to start at Badwater Basin and run all the way up to Mount Whitney, or at least up to the trails of Mount Whitney. Contrast and landscapes, such a short distance. The passage that we come to this morning in the book of Ephesians has a massive, massive contrast, and it starts in Death Valley, spiritual Death Valley, and it moves to the summit of the riches of God's grace, the beauty of the summit of the riches of God's grace that he's shown us, his mercy and his power and his goodness. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, and it will be in verses 1 through 10 this morning, page 976 in the Bible next to you. We're going to look at from death to life in 10 verses, and the plummets of the lowest of lows to the highest of highs. And here's the reality. We don't like to do this. We don't like to look hard at ourselves and look back at where we were, or maybe even presently look at we are, where we are the darkness of those things, and oftentimes we need to look at that back, black backdrop to really understand what God has brought us to, the summit in which God has brought us to. And so they say, and when you, if you're in the summer and you dare to go to Death Valley and you dare to go to Badwater Basin, they tell you to stay in your air-conditioned car. Good idea. But if they say, if you're going to get out, you need to stay on the pavement and you need to stay with some shoes on. And you need not stay there longer than about 10 or 15 minutes. So we're going to spend just a little time this morning. So go with me to Death Valley in the first three verses, and then we'll summit. We'll get in the car, in the air-conditioned car, and we will summit up to the highest of highs this morning. Previous weeks, last few weeks, we've seen the calling of God in Paul's life. We've seen the power of God at work to elect and predestine the power of God to save through the cross. We've seen the power of God at work in our lives. And today, we're going to see the same power that raised Christ from the dead that we sang about is the same power that takes dead men walking like you and me and makes them alive and puts them on a new path. Death Valley to the summit of the mountain. Ephesians 2, and I'm just going to read 1 through 3, and this is Death Valley right here. Spiritually speaking, Spiritual death valley for the human, the condition you and I were in without Christ. Read these 
look along as I read these sobering words. And you were dead. Be encouraged. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, not some of us, we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Here's your first thought. Without Christ, we were spiritually dead. Without Christ, we are spiritually dead. There's really three movements in those three verses. We go from being dead, that's our condition. Verse 2 and 3, you see our disobedience. Dead people are disobedient. That's the practice. And there's a number of influences in the practice, the disobedience that we walk when we're dead. Satan, the world, as well as our own motives and our, and our own what the Bible would call flesh. And then third, we're dead, we're disobedient, and we are doomed. We're children of wrath. So just want to look at each of those a little bit. So first, in verse 1, it says, you were dead. Can I give you the Greek for dead? You ready for it? dead. No life, absence of life, no ability, no breath, no movement, no choices, dead, corpse, no spiritual life apart from Christ, apart from when you come to know Christ. Before that, you have no spiritual life whatsoever. You're dead. And why are you dead? What does the text say? Look at it. It says you are dead. Why? In your trespasses and sins, you're dead because of sin. You're dead effectively because of what you do. We'll get to the nature part later, but what you do, we sin apart from Christ. Don't have to go back too far as you turn the pages of Scripture in Genesis 2. What did God say? He made them in His image. He made them to know Him and to walk with Him in the cool of the day. But He said what? Don't take of the knowledge of the tree of the good and evil, right? Don't do it. When you do that, you will what? You will die. And then they take, and if you've never read the Bible, you're like, well, they're gone. We're done. But we're still here. How does that work? When they take, they don't physically die, do they? What does God do? He slays an animal next to them and covers them with it. We'll get to that in a minute. They don't physically die, but they are spiritually dead. They are separated from God. They have a broken relationship spiritually with their maker. And all the way through Scripture, you see this picture. As a matter of fact, if you just look at the next couple of verses after the text we're in today, flip to verse 12. It says, remember that you were at the time before you knew Christ, separated from Christ, alienated, look at these words, alienated, apart from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers, you're outside the covenant of promise. You have, look at this phrase, no hope and without God. Apart from Christ, you have no hope and you are without God in this world, lonely, apart, dead. Ephesians 4, just a couple of chapters later, says it says it this way, chapter 4, verse 18, speaking of unbelieving Gentiles, they are darkened in their understanding, 
alienated, there's the word again, from the life of God because of their ignorance that was in them due to their hardness of heart. Our condition apart from Christ is a spiritual deadness. We see it all the way through Scripture. See these words like dead, alienated, no life because of sin, slavery, bondage. When you read Romans, you can't help but see it. The bondage, the slavery of sin. That is a bleak place. There's a $100 word for all of this, verses 1 through 3. It's this, total depravity, or maybe better phrased, pervasive depravity. You're dead. There's no spiritual life in you. You're doomed. You're disobedient. And here's the thing. You're not as bad as you could be. Neither am I. You're not as bad as you could be. Here's why. Because God has made you in his image. When you think of the worst person on the planet, there's a sense of common grace that God has given them to where there is good. Or you think about the most moral person that you know who might not even be a Christian. There's common grace that God gives all because we're made in his image, believer or unbeliever, and you see that. You go, what do you mean we're dead? We, we can do good things. Humans can do amazing things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying spiritually speaking, Spiritually speaking, the Bible is really clear that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. Here's the thing. You're not as bad as you could be, but you are certainly, and I am certainly as bad off as I could ever be. You're not as bad as you could be, but you're as bad off as you could ever be before God, apart from Christ. And here's the thing. Spiritually dead people, they don't have a will. They can't do anything. There's no activity. Two weeks ago, we went through a really challenging text, didn't we? Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. People avoid that text like the plague because it goes places where we're uncomfortable or we can't make full sense of how God is sovereign in salvation, predestination. And that takes you a while to scratch your head and go, yeah, but where's my will? How does all this work together? And one of the best ways you can really come to grips with the need effectively of God to intervene, for God to set his love and acceptance on you before the foundation of the earth, you come to understand that better when you realize your actual spiritual condition before God apart from Christ. Dead people don't do anything. Dead people can't take any action. So that might be helpful. See, here's the deal. If you pull off, if you're able, which we're not, right? If you are able to pull kind of the top off the world and look at it spiritually, or you put your goggles like your spiritual, God would give you some spiritual goggles to look through, and you looked at the world like an x-ray vision, spiritual x-ray vision, that's what you would see. You would see dead men walking without Christ. There's this subculture of movies. I don't get it. Zombies? Anybody like zombies? Actually, don't tell me. Like, I'm going to think you need counseling or something. I got believing friends. They love zombie movies, Walking Dead, Shaun of the Dead, like weird stuff to me. I'm like, okay, I know where this movie's going, but people love zombie movies. What? Hey, somebody's making money. The closest I got is I Am Legend. It's not really even a zombie movie if you're a zombie person, right? It's like just very commercial. Will Smith. But 
The picture that the scripture paints here and other places of dead men walking is kind of the picture that you have of the zombie. That they're walking around, but they're not there. It's not them. And when do they come out? They don't come out in the light. They don't come out in the day. They come out at night in the darkness. And so how do dead people, how do zombies walk? That's what it says here. They walk in the deadness. How do they walk? Look at it. The second point is not only are you dead, you're dead people, zombies, they walk in disobedience. That's the practice. They walk in one direction. They follow, look at it in the text, they follow the prince of the power of the air, Satan, who's been given some dominion before Jesus comes back, to influence. Look at the influences, the things that influence dead people in one direction. The prince of the power of the air, he has influence over. The world also has influence. Do you see it there? The course of the world following that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We like to leave it right there. They go, you know what? Satan's the one that tempted me. It's Satan's fault. The world is the one that's pushed me in this direction, and so it's the world's fault. We like to blame those two things, but keep looking. Sorry. It gets worse. (laughs) Among whom we once lived, verse 3, how do we live? How do we choose to live in our disobedience? In the passions of the flesh. That's the direction we walk, carrying out our desires, the desires of the body and the mind. Ouch. We're disobedient and there's influences. We walk in the passions of our flesh. Listen, we walk like a zombie walks at night in the darkness. We don't walk in the day. And I remember before I knew Jesus, I knew about Jesus, but I remember before I knew Jesus. And I was, I was in college, and I remember leading up to God turning the lights on, if you will. I was an athlete, so that means I cared about performance. And when you're a golfer, it's like day to day. You know, if you shoot 80, you're in the doldrums. You shoot 70, you're excited. So my whole life was performance. And so as I was, I think, experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit, God working in my life, my solution was to just do better. I'm going to perform. I'm going to figure this out. And you know what happens when you can't perform? It's really frustrating (laughs) if you're a performance person. I could never get there. And the reason I could never get there is right here. Because I was walking in one direction. The lights weren't turned on. It's the only way I could walk. I want you to think about that in your own life. I also want you to think about that as it relates to the person who doesn't yet know Jesus, walking in their own passions and what you want from them. What you want, maybe it's somebody you know. I want them to change their behavior. I'm tired of it. And and, and that may be. But understand, they're spiritually dead. They're spiritually disobedient. They can't do what you want them to do. And so the best thing for you to do and think and pray is for their salvation, that God would work through his gospel to turn the lights on, right? We don't just do that, though, with people that we know. We do that on social media or in our culture. And it's not that we like what it looks like in the world that we live in, but the reality is God has to turn the lights on for people. And they were walking, Titus is going to say, we're going to go there in a minute, 
That's how they walk. They walk in disobedience. Like you and I would without Christ. Dead, disobedient. In thinking about passions and impulses, you walk in one direction. I got two dogs. I got two rabbits too. We got lots of animals. When we get to take vacation, we're going to call you all just to help us. So we've got a Labrador retriever. And we got her at about, how old was she? Eight weeks-ish, whatever. She's a retriever. They are bred way back in the day. Guy shoots something, go get it, bring it here. So I didn't have to teach Sunshine. <laughs> I didn't have to teach her how to retrieve. I mean, she started bringing me sticks at eight weeks when we got her. And then we get the rawhide that are really expensive, the, the bones, and, and she loves to play. She didn't love to give it back to me yet. I'm still working on that. I am training her in that. But I didn't have to train her in that. That's the impulse. We, had a, we have a, a, a newer miniature dachshund, and she's you know, acting like the old miniature dachshund to some extent. So we had this lady, and I think I've shared this before. We had a miniature dachshund, first dog of the family, kids were little, died last year, lady. And she was bred as a miniature dachshund to burrow and to go get stuff. And I think just to bark. I mean, I had to get double pane windows on the house just to stop the barking. And then we moved to a new house that had single pane. So here we are, or here we were. But no lie, y'all, she could be a dead asleep in the middle of the night, and I would hear a dog next door barking, and she would bark. She wasn't even awake. That's crazy. That's the impulse. It's built in, and that's the way we were apart from Christ. We walk in disobedience. And last, it's going to get worse. How long have we been in Death Valley? I'm going to get you out in a minute. Third, it says this, verse 3, and we were by nature children of wrath. That's real encouraging, Paul. Thanks. We we're doomed. We're not just disobedient, dead. We're doomed. We got no hope. We can't get ourselves out of this equation. But here's the thing. If you believe that your hope is in, I've done enough, I'm good enough, I come from good enough stock. It's never enough. That is a bleak spiritual condition. That is death valley. But understand it. Understand the importance of it. Listen, we live in a Christianese kind of culture, especially here in Texas or the South. I get in trouble when I say that from somebody from the South. But we live in this Christianese culture. You know the biggest challenge for folks? is to believe, not to believe that they're saved, to believe they're not saved. I'm saved because I wear a cross and my daddy or my grandpa was a preacher. And I believe this, this, and this. Like there's a cultural Christianity. It's harder here in some ways because you're trying to show people their deadness. <laughs> I'm religious, effectively. I fit all the bills. I'm a Christian because my family. I'm a Christian because I wear a cross. I'm a Christian because I come to church. The significance of this text is, no, we're dead. We're doomed. We're disobedient. Something else has to happen outside of us. 
And if you look at the world around us and how we engage, it's, it's important because maybe you're looking at that person. Maybe it's even that LGBT person that you just don't like and you don't like what it's doing to the culture and your school and all those things. Those people need the lights turned on as much as the religious person too. They're dead and they're, they're, they're walking in their impulses just like the religious person. That's the culture we live in. And so instead of hating Maybe we ought to be praying. Maybe we ought to be engaging people with the gospel. That's hard. But that's the reality. And then there's just the broad thought that we're good. I'm a big country music person. I like country music, a lot of it. Some of it bothers me, you know, when the song goes from like smoking and drinking to going to church the next day. I get that. Right? You know those? That bothers me a little bit, but it's country music. Again, Christianese culture. But there's this song, and every time I hear it, I hate it so much. Is that a word? Can I do that? Luke Bryant, like he's kind of commercial, you know, he does his thing. But, and I like some of his songs, but there's one song that rates on my soul more than any other song, I think, even the bad stuff, y'all. And it goes, it has this line where it gets to, and it's super commercial, so everybody's supposed to like it. I believe most people are good. Are we good? Am I good? I could be worse, but am I good? What is my own experience? Maybe nobody knows. Maybe my, what does my own experience tell me about that? Am I? Look around at the world. The cries for justice, rightfully so. Are we good? Here's the thing. You may be thinking this. Man, this guy, like, so, so, if we're not good and we don't have much good in us, then you're just going to be a pessimist. Like, you're just going to live with, you know, glass half full, and you're just going to look at everybody in your family and around you and go, yeah, I'm waiting for the bad thing. That's not what I'm saying. I, I'm not insinuating in that, that we don't see the good in people, that we don't think the best. First Corinthians says love is thinking the best until proven otherwise, right? That's not what I'm saying. But there is a reality that we have to live in, isn't there? a reality in our own hearts, in our own lives, to rightfully understand I'm capable. Perhaps you followed the, the Murdoch trial. I haven't followed it very much, but I watched about a 20-minute clip. And this guy claims he's innocent, and yet he admits to some things, and he talks about brutal, and there's a brutal murder that happens with his wife and his son, and it looks like he did it. He still won't admit to it. But, but he does admit to lying over and over and over. And he speaks of the web of lies. I'm like, that's pervasive depravity. This family that looked normal and joyful, even the judge, this guy's a lawyer. It's like, you're a joyful, normal person. You had a wonderful family. You brutally murdered them. Are we good? There's a reality that we must live in to understand, apart from Christ, that we're not good. So that's Death Valley, and you're going, thanks, Pastor, really appreciate it. You know, feel real encouraged and built up today. Some of you guys in here, and I'm, I'm in this boat too, I would rather take three verses and be done. Most texts, it's just easier that way. There's one thing, it just might take two years to get through Ephesians. 
But I'm going to tell you this morning, you ought to be glad that we're not taking three verses and closing the book. Because we're going to summit this beautiful mountain. Because your next thought is this. Look at verse 4 through 7. The whole scene changes from Death Valley to the mountain, the summit of God's mountain. Look at it. Verse 4, but God. If you needed to have two words, if there were two words that you could put on a t-shirt, it'd probably be good. Because to describe the God, but God. We're sinful, but God. That'd be a great t-shirt, by the way, if you, if you like wearing Christian t-shirts, because it begs the question, what's next? But God, being rich, there's that word again, being rich in what? Mercy, we sang about it. In mercy, because of the great love, mercy, love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what does he do? This is the climax of the text. He made us alive, death to life. He makes us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up. Think of Christ, last text, raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. Without Christ we are spiritually dead. With Christ we are spiritually alive. Praise God. What's God's motive here? Mercy. Not getting what we deserve. We deserve to be left in the deadness, if that's a word. That's what we deserve. But he pulls us out, as I said a couple weeks ago. He pulls us out of that place by his mercy. We don't deserve it. But he pulls us out. And what else? Look at this. His mercy and his great, not just his love, his great love, which he loved us. Even when, we didn't clean ourselves up, even when we were dead at our trespasses and sin, he pulled us out in which he loved us, and he made us alive. I gave you a $100 theological term, pervasive depravity. Let me give you another one, what it means to be alive. Here's a big word, regeneration, to regenerate. Here's another phrase that you might recognize, to be born again. New birth, new life. And who imparts it? God imparts it to us. We can't impart it to ourselves. We're dead. Remember the story of Nicodemus? He comes to Jesus, John 3. What must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says something spiritual, not physical. You must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. Neither would you and I you mean to go back into my mother's womb? What are you talking about? No. You must be born again, spiritually, regenerated. And then you, you come to the story of the prodigal son. Remember the story? Prodigal son, so his father, two sons, wants his inheritance, wants to leave. He leaves. He goes and parties. He goes and does all these awful things. And then he's coming back and his father sees him. And he's running back to his father eventually from the pit, from his sin. And he, what is the first thing he does when he sees his father? He confesses. He repents to God and his father. And what does his father say? He says, my son was once dead. 
Think about that relationship. My son was dead. Was he physically dead? My son was dead, and now he's alive. Let's celebrate. It's a great picture of regeneration. He wasn't physically dead, but he was spiritually dead. He had gone his own way, and he confesses and he repents to his father, and there's a restored relationship. He's alive again. And it's interesting in the story because you see this beautiful picture of new life. But you see the older brother, and you don't know all the implications of it. People have guessed at it a little bit. The oldest brother's still there. Somebody comes and tells him about it, and he's not happy. So the question that you have coming out of the story of the prodigal son is, who was really a prodigal at the end? Is it the religious son who does all the things? Is he really alive or is he dead? Because the prodigal has come home. Can I just stop here and, and ask you, maybe like the prodigal son, maybe you've run off. Have you come back home to the father? Have you confessed? your sin, and understood that Christ has died in your place. When you believe that and trust that and come back, you're made alive. We're made alive through Christ. And why does he do this? Look at verse 7. Why would God take dead people and make them alive? Well, there's a lot of reasons. His love, his mercy, relationship. But one of the other Reasons you find in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Here's the deal. If you're a Christian, your life is a testimony of going from death to life. You know what? God doesn't really have a PR department. He doesn't need to clean anything up. You and I are the trophies of his grace. You and I are his PR department. Our calling is to bear witness, to display the glory of God to the ages, to the people around us as a church. The end role for the church, one of the roles is to display the glory of God to a lost world. And so we become his PR department. He wants people to look at us and say, the light's been turned on. They've been changed. So maybe the question for us is, what does that look like? Does the kindness of his love and his mercy and his grace radiate from this church? Does it radiate in our lives? We're trophies of his grace. And so I can look around the room and go, Brother Tom over here, I'm just picking people has gone from death to life and go, he's living in the light, not in the darkness. I can look over here, my sister and my wife, gone from death to life, trophies of his grace. That's how people are meant to see believers for the coming generations. But you get to verse 8 here, gone from death to to life, but how does that life come to us? It comes to us through two gifts, two gifts that God grants us. Look at verse 8. This is the coffee cup verse. Verse 1 through 3 isn't coffee cup for anybody, but verse 8 and 9 are, and they're beautiful verses out of that. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Understand that the word this is both grace and faith. Those are gifts that God gives us. Not as a result of work so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship. Literally works of art. That's what he says about us. I know I was beating you up earlier. You're dead. You're doomed. The Bible says if you're alive, you're a work of his art. On his canvas. That's a beautiful thing. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Note the order. Saved to good works. Not good works to save. Which God prepared even those. He's prepared beforehand. Why? That we should walk in them. How are we walking before? In darkness. We were dead and we walked in our deadness and disobedience. And we were doomed. Made alive and now he wants us to walk in the newness of life. The path that he set out. So look at these gifts of grace and faith. He gives us. Think about gifts. If I were to give you a nice gift and you pulled out your wallet and started to try to pay me, what would I think? I wouldn't be too pleased. I gave you a gift. What do you do with a gift? You receive it. You take it. You're thankful for it. What's grace? It's what God provides that we can't provide for ourselves. It's getting what we don't deserve. What is faith? Faith is trust and reliance and dependence on what what you're counting on. It's more than knowledge. It's more than just assent and understanding. It's trust. But even faith is a gift. And we have a hard time understanding grace and faith is gifts. We don't have a hard time understanding grace as a gift, do we? That's what it means. It's a grace gift. God gives it to you. We don't deserve it. But I want you to note in this passage that, that faith specifically is a gift. This is a package. Faith and grace are a package in this passage. Look closely at verse 8. By grace you've been saved through faith. And this, what is this? It's grace and faith. What we typically do is say, no, 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 no. Faith is mine. Right? Faith is what I possess, but that's not what this passage is saying. It's saying this, even if you took it and said, this is faith, what is it? It's not your own doing. Faith is not your own doing. Grace is not your own doing. It is a what? It is a gift from God. And so that day that you came to know Jesus that you could recall to me or I could recall to you, that faith was being exercised for sure, wasn't it? You exercised the faith in time and space But that faith was a gift that God gave you when he turned the lights on, when he regenerated you. And so your confession and your repentance and your exercise of faith, when you put your trust in Christ, those are gifts of his grace that he's given to you. We tend to think of it as God gets a vote, right? And he votes for, right? He votes for our salvation. Satan gets a vote and he votes down. And so we're the deciding vote, but that's not how it works. Our faith is the deciding vote? No. God gives us these gifts of grace and faith. Spurgeon said it this way, because you gotta, it's hard to understand, truthfully, the relationship. Go with me here. It's hard to understand by grace through faith. Help me understand the relationship between grace 
and faith better. Spurgeon said it this way, and it's a great picture, and it really communicates this truth well. He says this, grace is the fountain, imagine this, grace is the fountain and the stream. Faith is the channel along which the mercy flood of grace flows down the thirsty sons of men. That's a beautiful picture. It rightfully helps us understand grace. Grace is from God. It's a fountain and a stream. But if a stream has to flow in a direction to get to people, doesn't it? It has to flow. And the channel that, that grace comes to us is the stream of faith. You catch that? And look at this. What does salvation produce? Verse 9 and 10. What do you see? Here's what it, it doesn't produce. Boasting. Is there any room for boasting if God by his grace has given us the gift of grace and faith? There's no boasting. I can't say, I done it. I did it. I'm smart. I figured it out. It's all grace. It's all mercy. It comes from the hand of God. So there's no, the beauty of the gospel is there's no boasting in it. Unlike other religions where you're like, I did it. I climbed the ladder. There's no ladder to climb with the God of heaven. He brings it down. He does it for you. And what does he want? What does it produce? It ought to produce worship, gladness. I mean, think about the things that you don't earn, that you get. What's the emotional response? Thank you. I'm grateful for it, right? There's no boasting, but there is good works. Do you see it? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, we're saved by grace alone. We're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is what? Y'all finish it. Y'all know. Never alone. Saving faith is never alone. It's accompanied by good works. Notice the order. It's not you're dead in your sins, you work really hard, and because you work really hard, God turns the lights on, you're alive, and, and now you are good. It's, that's not the order you see here, is it? What's the order? You're dead in your trespasses and sins. God turns on the lights. He makes you alive, and he gives you gifts of faith and grace, and then good works. You catch that? Important. We're dead. Christ gives us life. He sends us out. He paves out a road for us to walk in those good works. That's a, these are glorious truths. If you've ever been to any art museum, Art museums are, are filled with paintings and statues and different kinds of works of art. And beneath those works of art, what do you want to know? You, you might want to know the date in which the artwork was created. You might want to know the title of the artwork. But what do you really want to know? You really want to know who did it. You really want to know the name of the person who painted it, who sculpted it. Picasso, Rembrandt. Can I tell you what this text is doing here, especially at the end? This text is how the divine artist took a scrap heap of paints 
and a broken down, beat up canvas and produced a work of art. You're his workmanship. You were dead. You were made of life. You're his workmanship. He crafted you. He made you. See, the beauty of the artwork always testifies to the skill and the glory of the artist, does it not? So here's the thought. There's one name written on your picture. There's one name you should know. There's one name written over the scrap heap and the paints. There's one name above every name, the name of Jesus. His name is all over your life and your salvation. Not yours, not mine. So C3, your takeaway is this. We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in the name of Jesus. Why? Because my name and your name has no claim. Has no claim. He's claimed you. He's brought you from death to life, and he set you on a path. And he's even prepared those works in advance to you. You're his work of art. We were dead. We were disobedient. We were doomed. His death brings us mercy and love, and his gifts of grace and faith bring us life and purpose. Let's boast in the name of Jesus. Let me pray.